0: Your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish, and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And this episode, as
1: always, is brought to you by our patrons and academics on the Bestseller Academy. And we have one new patron this week. Uh, Please, please budge up at the back and make room for KJ Del Antonio. Welcome aboard. And thank you to everyone who keeps this podcast going. We simply could not do it without you sweet, sweet people.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Mr. Stay, how are you today, sir? I'm excited. It's just a week, just a week until our fifth anniversary live show, Wednesday, 13th of October. Actually, when this goes out, it'll be just a couple of days. But when we're oh, recording God. it, it's a week. Wednesday, 13th of October, folks. Burn that into your mind. It's going to be all over our social media. Don't miss it. Me and Mr. D, live, fully clothed, uh, not on the toilet. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. Yes. Um, but yes, it's going to be fun. Five it's years. It's going
0: to be five years I cannot believe it I cannot believe it we'll soon be getting to that point Mark in our in our life where we'll have done this podcast more than we studied English at school <laughs> yeah very quite yeah. very,
2: very but if likely. you want to
0: be a part of that if we're opening this up to everyone we yep. want our we want you know whether you're a patron whether you've been a listener for years whether you just discovered the podcast come to this live show this is going to be a real special occasion and if you'd like to find out how to become part of that you simply have to do one e easy task. And that is go to our website, bestsellerexperiment.com, click on the newsletter tab and sign up to our newsletter and mailing list. And we will email you the details a couple of days before and a little reminder on the day. And we hope to have the largest audience ever.
1: And the other thing we're going to do, folks, we're going to be announcing the winner of the Joe Abercrombie, signed Joe Abercrombie Wisdom of Crowds giveaway at the end of the show. not going to do it at the beginning because we've learned now you've got to tease people. Keep them on the hook. Of course, people on the podcast are now going, scroll to the end. No. (laughs) No. You have to
0: listen to the show. To to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to drop numbers throughout the show, and there's going to be a code that you know. I'm just joking. But <laughs> we had tons of entries. So thank you to everybody mm. who wants this book. It it's was popular. quite phenomenal. Yeah, it's a very joke, good. Isn't it? absolutely. Now, we have we have a, a, a jam filled episode today, Mark, haven't we? But tell me about, before we dive into our incredible guest this week, and it's, oh my gosh, I don't think I've written as many notes on this interview as <laughs> anyone recently. <laughs> Tell me about what's been happening for you on Amazon recently.
1: Yeah. um, So not only do I
0: have Babes in the Wood coming out at the end of the month, which is a
1: second Woodville book, and also, oh, I should say, if you're listening to this in October 2021, The Crow Folk, is ninety nine p on ebook in the UK? Whatever you um. know, your Kindle, Apple, uh, uh, Kobo, uh, Google ninety nine p across the board for the month of October. Halloween, good cozy Halloween read. So check out the Crowfolk ninety nine p. But not only do I have Babes of the Wood coming out at the end of the month, I've got a new hardcover coming out. Well, me. And fifty-four other authors. <laughs> um, this is uh, Everyday Kindness, which is a charity anthology of short fictional stories of kindness, edited by the wonderful L.J. Ross, Louise Ross, just one of the most wonderful best-selling indie authors, you know that we know, and she's been on the show before, and she's just incredible, and she's publishing this book through her imprint, Dark Skies. Publishing. And these are uplifting tales of hope and small everyday kindnesses. The idea is to read one daily through the course of a year uh, just to support wider positive mental health, you know, foster well being. Read some good stuff. We get grim news at the moment, but there are good people out there. And this has got, I mean, the authors, the authors in this, right? So all proceeds. In the book will be donated to Shelter, which is a UK charity that helps millions of people uh, every year struggling with bad housing or homelessness. So here are the authors. LJ Ross, Adam Hamdy, Alex Smith, Alexander Gordon Smith, Alison Stockham, Anne O'Leary, Barbara Copperthwaite, JD Kirk, CL Taylor, Kelly Taylor, been a guest, hello, uh, Caroline Mitchell, Chris McDonald, CK McDonald, which of course is Cueve, hello Queeve! uh, Claire Sheehy, Claire Finn, Darren O'Sullivan, David Ledbetter, Debbie Young, Deborah Carr, Emma Robinson, Graham Brack, H.M. Lynn, Heather Martin, Holly Martin, Ian Sainsbury. We know him. Uh, Imogen Clark, James Gilbert, Jane Corey, Jean... Gill, JJ Mars, Judith O'Reilly Kelly Clayton, Kim Nash, she's lovely she's been on a deep dive before, Liz Fenwick she's been on before, uh, Louise Beach Louise Jensen, Louise Mumford, Malcolm Holling Drake, uh, Marcia Wolf, Mark Stay, that's Who's me that? um, <laughs> Marcy Steele, Natasha Bash uh, Nick Jackson, Nick Quantrill uh, Nikki Black, Patricia Gibney Rachel Sargent, Rob Parker, Rob Scrag S.E. Lines, Shelley Day, Casey Kelleheller, Sophie Hanna uh, Leah Mercer, Victoria Connolly, Victoria Cook and Will Dean (gasps) Um, And uh, my story is a Witches of Woodville story called Two Chickens for Laura Longarms, uh, which was edited by a friend of the podcast, Julian Barr. And it takes place between The Crow Folk and Babes in the Wood. And the only place you're going to be able to read it is in the Everyday Kindness anthology. It's out on 13th of November. It's an ebook and hardcover. All proceeds go to Shelter. Get it from Amazon, Waterstones, Smiths, Independence. Uh, if you're outside the UK, there's a link on Book Depository. I'll put a link in the show notes. And like I say, this is all the brainchild of the wonderful LJ Ross. And when it went up for pre-order this, this week it topped so many charts on amazon our last count but i got a brief glimpse of what it's like to be lj ross <laughs> it's like oh, oh this is what it's like it's great it's brilliant so um, i'm Fantastic. hoping to get louise back on the show again uh but she's not just pregnant she's very pregnant so her baby to be may have other plans uh but it'd be uh, lovely to talk to louise about this but it's an amazing project i'm really really proud to be a part of it and uh yeah go grab a copy now
0: Fantastic and I've got to say shelter as a charity I was involved with them actually back in Mm -hmm. the early 2000s when I was running a property website funnily enough and um they're a very, very charity. incredible charity, yeah. So please do get around to support that as well. And um, unbelievable, and thank to all the authors that took part in that, and for LJ for for making it happen. Fantastic news. So, Mister Stay, um, we have a lot to get through. So we're going to talk about our guest this week because I can't wait. I want to get on with this. Let's let's do this. this Tell us great. about the amazing Felix Francis.
1: Okay, well, this is uh, Felix Francis. He studied physics and electronics at London University and then spent 17 years teaching A-level physics. But crucially, he is the younger son of crime writer and national hunt jockey Dick Francis. Now, let's just take a moment to talk about the legend that is Dick Francis. Okay, He was one of the most successful steeplechase jockeys ever. He won over 350 races. Three hundred. I can't even imagine racing 350 races, let alone winning them. Um, but he's also the author of 42 thrillers, and, and he sold more than 60 million copies in 35 languages. The novels all dealt with crime and corruption in the horse racing world and were regular bestsellers. The first was Dead Cert in 1962, and he essentially wrote a book a year until he retired in 2006. But as you'll discover, Felix and the family were all helping his father in the research and writing of his novels. And uh, in a father and son relationship and continuing his father's legacy, Felix has written 15 best selling novels. So the Felix and Dick Francis novels combined have now sold over 80 million copies in 40 languages. And he's got a new one called Iced. And we discuss getting inspired by travel asking the right person the wrong question, reading aloud, and much, much more.
0: Fantastic. This is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant interview, folks. So please get your kettles on, get your hobnobs out, and have a listen to Felix Francis chatting with Mark.
1: Felix Francis, welcome to The Best Seller Experiment. How are you today, sir?
0: I'm very well, Mark. Thank you
1: splendid stuff now we're, we're here to talk about your thrilling new novel iced which opens with an incredible description of the protagonist hurtling down the famous samarit's crust to run at 80 miles an hour and it's completely convincing i mean talk about throwing us in hitting the ground running the reader really feels every death-defying turn so i assume you did all this yourself in the name of research obviously
2: <laughs> I went and watched uh, uh, and those who run the crest to run threaten that I'm going to be going down it next time I turn up. Uh, but I did, uh, on on the day I didn't get there in time. Uh, I didn't realize you had to be there very, very early in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning if you want to go down it. And having seen it, I'm not so I mean the vertical drop this is a, this is a three quarter mile long ice chute. Uh, in uh, St Moritz and the vertical drop from top to bottom is three times the drop over Niagara Falls and I'll tell you Niagara Falls in a barrel looks quite uh, attractive compared to uh, <laughs> doing the Crest Run. Uh, before, before any would-be beginner starts they show they have in the, in the clubhouse and they show them a life-size full montage of x-rays showing all the metal that had to be inserted into legs and arms and heads and shoulders and <laughs> knees, for all those who have uh, have had accidents on the Cresta Run. And having seen this um, uh, sight ahead of them, they then have to sign a waiver saying they won't sue uh, the Cresta Run if they get injured, that they recognise the risks. <laughs> um, yes, it, it makes... Uh, uh, steeple chasing quite uh, look quite safe i think
1: <laughs> what was really interesting is 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 your hero miles Pussett he he has a panic attack on the crestor run and you and you kind of think i think you're really great at getting in the minds of sports people in those terrifying moments and also the mental health aspects of sports people they, these aren't superheroes aren't they
2: no no absolutely not they're they're regular people and in fact miles um suffers from quite a lot of uh, problems so he's far from being a superhero But uh, he's a regular guy thrown into um, an irregular circumstance, you might say. I mean, it's uh, all my protagonists tend to be people who, well, I always like to think that they're me. I mean, they're a lot younger than I am, but a lot of them have the attributes that I would want. They're not necessarily the mental health problems that Miles suffers. But uh, it is, um, I don't have superheroes. I don't have uh, James Bond who can dodge a... uh, speeding bullet and no um they're 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 people i feel that my readers can associate with as well they are they're like them as it were
1: absolutely and the mental health aspect seems to be something that's that's important to you certainly the last few books there seems to have 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 been a strong theme in your writing
2: yes it, it it has i think partly because everyone is talking about it and partly because i have family experience of uh, mental health problems. So uh, you might say that that writing about it and um, allowing my character to deal with it and perhaps overcome it in their own way is, is, is part therapy for me as well.
1: Excellent stuff. Uh, and,
2: um, and perhaps hope over expectation. You know, it's uh, hope over experience anyway.
1: <laughs> Your novels require... A lot of research, and, and they need to be authentic because I think the kind of readership that reads your kind of books has expectations. Are you a are you a research first kind of writer, or do you write it and then go and do the research?
2: Oh, I do the research very much as I go along. In the case of it was it was unusual insofar that I was invited to go to White Turf. Now, White Turf is a horse race that takes place on the frozen lake Samaritz. And while I was there, I went down the road from the hotel to see the Cresta Run as well. And the whole experience of seeing the Cresta Run, um, experiencing this fantastic horse race on a uh, on a frozen lake, it almost created the story for me in that one weekend. So it wasn't that I went out there to do the research. Um, it was just that i went out there to see the racing in the hope that something might turn up to go in a book and and almost by lunchtime on the first day i had a i had a story uh um and uh, that was wonderful and and, and the lock, lockdown has meant that um, you haven't been able to travel and i look forward and long to go to places and see things which inspire the story so they're not so much i've got an idea i need to go to a, B, or C in order to research it is it go to A, B, and C and see whether it inspires a storyline. I mean, I, I love going and watching racing all over the world, and I've you know we've had Melbourne Cups and Kentucky Derbies have been in uh, in books and racing in Hong Kong, things like that. I, I I I so I knew that going to White Turf would be something I would try and incorporate in a book. What well, I didn't imagine it when I Got on the aeroplane to go, to fly out there, but I would come back with the whole story just about in my head. That was magnificent. Uh, I'm now looking to go and watch uh, the Palio, for example, in in around the cobble square in Siena, uh, and think and hope that that might uh, inspire uh, another story. But to wait and see.
1: Oh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. We were talking to uh, an author, Elise Valmorbida, uh, and she was talking about this thing that writers—you kind of have to have your story radar on all the time. Wherever you turn, what, every conversation you have—is that something you're aware of?
2: Oh, completely. And, and my uh, my accountant, uh, when he's going through my accounts, uh, preparing my my tax return, uh, he says, "Now, this trip you did to X, Y, or Z." that research and I say every trip I do (laughs) it is looking for information completely. Everything I do I consider to be um, part of my um, part of my to try and and, and produce some some ideas. Everyone I meet uh, I ask questions uh, of uh, sometimes it's a matter of asking uh, the right person the wrong question. You ask a question, and they say no, that couldn't happen, but this could, and suddenly you have an, a, a sparking an idea. Um, absolutely, I remember going. I remember my my wife is a great lover of classical music, um, especially Bach concerts, and I she always says you don't want to come, do you? Uh, because you won't enjoy it. And I said I want to come anyways. But to to uh, um, I went to a concert with her, and I came away thinking. I'm going to put a character in who's a, mu- who's a musician. Uh, and that was in Dead, Dead Heat. Uh, and uh, the, the the viola player. Uh, and, and it was, you know, it, you, you, I mean, as my father always said, used to say, you have to fill up the pages with something. And, and, <laughs> and, and the more experiences you have, the more chance you have of being uh, able to do just that.
1: Very good. Very good. Well, your father knew a thing or two about writing a story. And um, we discover that your protagonist, Miles Pussett, had a famous steeplechase jockey father, which is something I think you know a little about. And I'm sure you're sick of fielding questions about your father, but it is an extraordinary story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, you're uh, the Dick Francis books were well, always a bit of a family affair weren't there there was you know your your mother was helping you were helping it, they were always you know you were talking about stories over the dinner table is that correct
2: well yes i mean I, i'm often quoted as saying that breakfast conversation would be not who was doing the school run but whether sid halley could survive the night with a 38 slug in his guts <laughs> or how much uh, or how much uh explosive was required to blow up a house or <laughs> or even bring down an aeroplane. We won't say too much about that, in case my 5 are listening. <laughs> uh, but uh, and the very first part of a, of a Dick Francis novel I wrote was as a 17-year-old A-level student. I designed the bomb that blew up an aeroplane in rat race. Um, which, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it is. My mother used to call it the cottage industry without the cottage. <laughs> I mean, my brother was a, um, a racehorse trans... You no, know, he, he runs... A large racehorse transport business, and and he was included uh, in driving force. I was a schoolmaster, teaching A level physics for seventeen years, and the teacher was included in twice shy. Uh, members of the family, cousins and 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 uncles and aunts who had various businesses. I mean, my uncle was a great importer of wines. That was a huge. Uh, he was a huge source of information in in proof, and. Yeah, my mother and father used to work on the on the books together, and and uh, yeah, very much a family business. And the first person to read mine uh, when I finished the manuscript, I send it to my brother because he knows he's forgotten more about racing than I've ever, than I know. So uh, he will check to make sure that uh, the racing bits are accurate because, as you said, research in that respect is very important because they are the core the core audience, and if you get things wrong. Uh, and they are obviously wrong. Um, that they will lose, not only lose faith in you as a writer, but they'll certainly lose faith in the story. Mm.
1: Let's talk about that transition from teacher to writer, because you know you you studied you you studied physics, and uh, you clearly you know I it didn't look like you were going to be a jockey. I, I mean, I guess you know. Your dad won, was it, th- over 350 races? So maybe, you know, try not to follow in those footsteps. So what did you ever have aspirations
2: to write when you were younger? Uh, no, um, not at all. When I was a schoolmaster, people used to say to me, are you going to write? And I said the only fiction I write is school reports. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I didn't leave teachings to go straight into writing. I, uh, I became a businessman first. I left teaching to... Uh, become business manager for my parents because they needed it. And I also was deputy chairman of a uh, of an expedition company called World Challenge Expeditions Limited, and I did that for thirteen years. And it was only then that that uh, and I got into writing. And that was it was really a, a bit of a mistake, really. I mean, it was by accident. Um, my father's literary agent and I often had lunch together uh, because I was acting as the business manager. And we had lunch one day and he said, Felix, we've got a problem. And that is that all your father's books are going to go out of print. This was back in 2005. And uh, he said, there hasn't been a new book for five years because your father has retired um, and there, people are forgetting. And also the people who work for the bookstores, and I don't mean in the shops, but the corporate side, you know, corporate side of Waterstones, for example, the first thing they do when they come out of university is they become a buyer. They are to read books and decide which books are going to go on the shelves. And all of those people came out of university five years ago and they've never read Dick Francis books. So they have... So the books have been forgotten about, they're not being sold, and they're all going to go out of print. And the agent said, what we need is a new hardback. Well, I looked at him as if he was completely crazy, because uh, my father by this age was uh, was 85 years old, and you know his memory was failing, and uh, you need a good memory to write a book. And my mother had died um, five years previously, so And they'd worked on them together. So I said to the agent, I said, well, there's not going to be a new hardback. And he said, well, what I'm really asking is your permission to ask an existing established crime writer if he will write a Dick Francis novel by so-and-so just to stimulate the sales of the backlist and keep the backlist in print. Well, I must have had a few glasses of red wine by then. Who asked anyone else? um, I would like to have a go. You know, I've written bits of Dick Francis books for years. I'd helped my parents finish the last one they did because it was almost too much for them. And he didn't roll his eyes or or laugh, uh, thankfully. He said, "Uh, I'll give you two months to write two chapters. And he quite openly admits that he thought he'd get um, the permission he wanted after those two months. But I wrote the chapters, sent them in, to him we had another lunch and he said, well there's two things you've got to do one you better get on and finish it and secondly <laughs> you better go and talk to your father and uh, and I went to see my I went to see my father I said we need a new hardback and he said no uh, he's retired and I said well it, uh, uh, it could be about race fixing because race fixing was very much uh, in the news because there was a champion jockey who'd been was about to go on trial at the Old Bailey for race fixing. And he said, no. I said, "You could you bring back Sid Halley, who'd been in three books? No, he said. And I said, well, I've got a title. And he said, what title? I said, Under Orders. And uh, because it's a good racing term and uh, obviously good for, for race fixing. So, And I gave him the chapters and he suddenly got very excited by it. And I got on and finished it. And the book came out in 2006 as a Dick Francis. didn't have my name on it, um, but I wrote it. And uh, it went to the top of the bestseller list. Of course it did, because it was had the name Dick Francis on it. But in my view, it had to have Dick Francis on if it was going to stimulate the backlist. Mm. I was terrified that the reviews would all say that Dick had lost it. And when they all came out on the Sunday after the publication, they all said, the master is back. <laughs> and, and the publishers said, right, we want another one. Uh, the next one came out. They did put my name on the front of that because the American publishers were worried that they might get sued. And I wasn't allowed to say anyone to anyone that I'd written under all this for eight years. Mm. Uh, anyway, the, the, book, the next book came out with Dick Francis in very big letters and underneath in the <laughs> smallest font they can, and Felix Francis. And over the years, my... Um, Names got bigger. They still have a Dick Francis novel on the on the cover, but that's my choice. Mm. And um, so you might say that it was a bit of an accident and, and, and Iced is now my 15th. Uh, so I suppose I have to start saying that as I've been a writer as long, almost as long as I was a scholar, then I m- might need to change my, uh, my description of my, you know, m- my livelihood is, is writing books as opposed to teaching children.
1: <laughs> very good as you say even now it still says a dick francis novel that obviously that brand for want of a better word that 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 brings expectations how do you go about meeting those expectations without becoming formulaic without sort of falling into into tropy traps
2: i think if i knew I'd, if i knew that i think i'd can it and sell it but you know <laughs> you you uh I mean, there are there, there is a formula to the books. I mean, I don't mean the story as a formula because I think the stories are all different. But there is a formula to the books insofar that I write them in the first person narrative, and my father did did that as well, and and I did that purposely to be the same. They I tried that I purposely copied his style. It was just the style I'd grow, grown up with. I mean, I was eight when the first book was was published, and and. Uh, they went on for the next, you know, 38 years. And I. so I started reading them when I was about 12. And it was how, how I learned that the story should be paced. And my my father and my mother were conscious of, of what I call the rhythm of a sentence to make the sentence easy to read. I mean, some, some reviewers rather disparagingly say, oh, the Francis books, they're just easy reading. I tell you, I, I work very hard to make them easy reading. Yeah. yeah. Indeed, my books and my work is—I my wife and I me. And if it doesn't sound right, then uh, it's not. You know, I go back and 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 check it over. Uh, I think that the there are certain features which run through all the Dick Francis and Felix Francis stories. You know, I mean, uh, the underlying goodness, I suppose, of the main character. Uh, um, courage loyalty uh, a, a strong sense of right and wrong. um and, and and in many ways the characters are vulnerable um you know Sid Halley even was vulnerable because he he only had one hand um and uh, miles in eist is vulnerable because he suffers from mental health problems and and he has a unfortunate um Family background. So far father, that his father was killed in a car accident, his mother killed herself. So uh, there are uh, they're, they're vulnerable, and but and also the characters are mostly non-professional investigators. Uh, and you have to give your you have to write the book with to give your character sufficient incentive in order to do that detective detective work. If that's you know in investigating. I mean, I wrote a book called Bloodline where um, my main character is a TV and race course commentator. And the, the book starts with him saying they're off and he's commentating on a race uh, at Lingfield Park in which his twin is riding. It is actually his twin sister and he's uncomfortable about the race because he thinks that his sister did something which they used to do as kids Together, which was to make it look like you were riding a hard finish when you really weren't, and therefore she had effectively lost the race on purpose. Which, of course, is an absolute no-no mm. uh, in horse racing. You lose your livelihood for that. And they have dinner that night, and he says, "Such shame about whatever the name of the horse was." And she just sort of looks down at her plate and says, "I forgot that you were commentating." And they have a big row about the fact that you know what is she doing. Uh, uh, she will lose her livelihood, and she's saying, you just don't understand what it's like to be a girl in a, in a man's world. Uh, most of the men at the race course just see her wearing jodhpurs, holding a whip, and they don't think past that. And they have this big row, and at the end of the evening, she drives off without even looking at him, spinning the wheels on the, on the gravel of the restaurant car park. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on his door, and it's the police to tell him that his sister's been killed and he's and he is obviously struck by the grief but worse is to come because he says to the policeman I always said that car would be the death of her because she drove a sports car and he said oh no sir it wasn't a car accident she jumped from the 15th floor of the Hilton Hotel in London and suddenly that Grief turns to guilt. That he, did he? Caught, did that row push her over the edge? Why did she Why did she lose the race? Why did she jump? What's going on? And that gives your character, who's not an investigator and not a policeman, gives him the incentive to try and find out what the hell's going on. And those, so, so, I mean, I don't think that they're formulaic in terms of the storylines. But there are certain aspects of the books. But, I mean, you might say the same for, you know, Hercule Poirot um, mm-hmm. uh, or Miss Marple. You might certainly say the same uh, for anyone, who any author who writes police procedural books. I mean, uh, uh, Peter James is a great friend of mine, but he does write books which do have the same character, and he's a policeman, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he ranks in the same. And so... Um, I don't do that. I mean, my the theme that runs through all my books is that they're all the Dick Francis novel. As you said, that is the brand rather than the individual character. I mean, okay, Sid Halley has been around for, has been around in five, uh, but that's five out of 54. So, yes. <laughs> uh, he hasn't been in that one. Even though I have to tell you, he might be making a, a, a comeback uh, for next mm. year. Okay. <laughs> um, because when the last book I wrote was Sid Halley. A lot of the, book, a lot of the underlying storyline was about the fact that he, he might have had the opportunity to have a hand transplant. And the very last line of the book is, is the doctor, whose nickname is Harry the Hands. <laughs> Harry the Hands phones him up and says, Sid, we've got you a hand. So I couldn't leave it at that. I had <laughs> I've got to go and revisit him, and this time uh, he has uh, he's going to have a new hand. So... Uh, it's, it's not going to be following on. It's going to be a couple of years or so later. Uh, Sid has the ability not to age like the rest of us.
0: Thank
2: <laughs> you. He's a lucky man. He first appeared, uh, you know, almost 60 years ago, and he was yes. in his 30s then, and he's still only in his 40s or early 50s now. So um, he has the uh, ability to stay young. Very good. Like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, we're obsessed with uh writers' routines on the podcast. What does an average day look like for you? Are you a write everyday kind of writer? Uh
2: I am pretty much when I when I get going. I've written the very beginning of, of the next book, but uh as I said, just the very beginning, and because I've been doing promotion for ice and so on, and and my deadline is the end of March. So I've got uh six months and a week to go. Uh, so it's time to get knuckled down, and I try. You know, my target is always to write a thousand words a day. Mm. But uh, but at the beginning, it it, it can be five hundred or even less. Uh, at the end, when you're uh, as it were downhill on the crest of run, going towards the end, <laughs> it, it, you go a little faster. Uh, and of course, I don't write every day because there are other things in my life which I do. Um, but uh, but I do try and adhere to the rule that you shouldn't leave it more than three days at any one time because uh, then you start losing the thread that you need to uh, to carry on. And my I, I get to my desk. Well, I like to think I'm there at nine o'clock, but it's often half past nine uh, <laughs> in the morning. Uh, it's such a long commute downstairs uh, from my. Uh, uh, And the first thing I do is I read what I wrote yesterday. And I might spend up to an hour making changes on that and uh, just get happy with it before I really get into the new words. And sometimes I can do my thousand words pretty quickly, but I don't stop. I never stop before five. I mean, I get up and wander around a few times and my wife, insist that I uh, come out to have a bite of lunch <laughs> uh, but I uh, I try and get it finished by five but some days it's slow and um, and I have to sit there a little longer some days it's it's going really well and therefore I don't want to uh, to finish for the day but I would say I'm almost always finished by 7:30 in the evening I'm definitely not a, an evening person. Um, you know, we all think we do things better when we've had a glass of wine, but we all know it's really that we don't. And I do like having a glass of red. Uh, and indeed, my wife will often bring me through a glass of red, which is her way of telling me that that's long enough <laughs> and it's really come out. Uh, uh, um, so uh, that that is what I um, that is how I do it. I, I do it. I don't write second and third drafts. I just write one manuscript right. from start to finish. That doesn't mean to say I don't go back and change things. Of course I do. But I do it as I go along. And when I get to the end, it's the end. And then uh, my wife, Debbie, and I spend a few days. Uh, we try and go away for a few days to get away from you know the pressure of having to walk the dog or, or um, uh, answer the telephone. And she reads the whole story to me um, out loud from start to finish. And uh, I sit there and I make notes as she's going through. Listening to how someone else is is seeing your words is very, very important. I think too many people, I think, must put in books that no one else has read before they submit it. And it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... And then I spent two or three days tidying up and send the manuscript in. Of course, that's never the end because uh, the editor always wants changes. The copy editor finds that you've got, you know, Wednesday occurring after Thursday. And mm-hmm. uh, all these things which we know doesn't happen, but in a book can very easily stick through. And uh, then the proofs and the book goes to press. Um, I like to think it's gone to press by the end of May. Um, sometimes it's at the middle of June, but it's I try and get it done by the end of May and then I take um, you know a month off or so and do all the things that I have put off for, um, for for months on end and then and then of course it before I know it it's August and uh, I've got to start thinking of another story <laughs> and then sep- and then in September the book is published um, so. It's a pretty full-on year. I've taken over my father's life. That's how he uh, ran his life for, uh, for you know 40, 40 years, and mm. and I'm now doing the same. Uh, <laughs> but if I didn't enjoy it, I mean, people say to me, do you enjoy writing? Well, I really enjoy finishing it.
1: <laughs> Very good.
2: Uh, uh, now, now is not a good time to ask me when I've got to write between 90 and 100,000 words, and my word count at the moment is about 250.
1: <laughs> well, Felix, you, you you may enjoy writing them. Plenty of people enjoy reading them. Uh, folks, Iced is out now. Grab a copy now. If you want to go headlong down the run uh, first thing in the morning, it's it's highly recommended. Um, Felix, thank you so much for speaking to me. Best of luck with Iced and hope to speak to you again soon.
2: Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I've, been, I've really enjoyed it. My Take pleasure. care, everybody. Bye-bye.
0: The legend that is Dick Francis, I just have to say a little quick story. Uh, as a kid growing up, I would spend a number of uh, number of hours a week and, and days during the year at my grandparents' house in Chipstead in Surrey, of all places. They were just you know, nearby where we used to live. And I would see Dick Francis novels yeah. everywhere. Lit- like, you know, there would be one on the side of the settee. There'd be one on the bedside table. Yeah. Dick Francis was this kind of, it was the one author for me growing up that I, I used to always see around. It was and a constant.
1: Yeah. It was. Yeah, my, my, dad, my dad read them. My dad read them, got yeah. them out the library. The Queen Mum read them, you know, favourite favorite author of the Queen Mum, apparently. What was interesting though, as as um, Felix said, when they got to 2005 and he's, his dad had retired by then and his, his dad passed away in 2010, I believe. And he was saying, basically the books are being forgotten. And it's, it's such a, Odd idea that someone who's so massively successful can kind of fall out of fashion, and then Felix and his father reinvigorated the the brand, mm. and Felix has kept it going. So you can't take your foot off the pedal at all, can you? Really?
0: No, exactly. Well, it, but it's it's fascinating as well. We've done we've done a uh, a number of interviews with authors with famous parents. Um, you know, obviously, Joe Hill was our first big one with Stephen King as his dad, and but it's so interesting to hear this story of how Felix continued, firstly, continued the legacy, which mm. was incredible. Uh, and I just love when he said, you know, when he said that he was expecting the first review of, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, Dick's <laughs> lost his, lost his uh, mojo, his touch. Yeah, 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 right, and then it was. <laughs> You know, Francis back with another masterpiece, yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. But not only not only kind of continued the legacy by by bridging and and making that possible, but then and then being able to own it in his own right, which yeah. I absolutely love. Because there must be a real challenge of living under the, um, you know, living under the shadow, if you like, of a famous parent. I know that you know lots of people um, have that, but the way that he's he's now written fifteen novels and. owning it and and you know it's just such a brilliant story i think crucially the the
1: difference is it was always a family business yes you know i think mary uh helped write the books the boys chipped in you know it it, as you said the conversation around the dinner table was about the stories and the books and the background to it and that's such a wonderful and I, i don't really know any other family that that does that you
0: know well Uh, i I do know one family i do know one family um when we were writing back to reality mark (laughs) 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 no 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 word of a lie here we i make i make dinner times a a sacred time in our family in today's Mm -hmm. crazy world where the kids have got like you know millions of activities going on and we always make a point six o'clock every evening i've got the kids actually now cooking dinner like three times a yeah. week I'm not yeah. cooking which is brilliant um but we sit down at six o'clock and we ha- we eat together and it's just like this sacred family moment Yeah, we do the same it's, it's, the it's so same. Yeah. so important folks if you don't do it try even one one day a week but what started happening of course when we we're writing back to reality is I would come in and we go oh Mark and I are stuck on this bit you know we're kind of trying to get and I and I and I started telling my kids um and Jen about uh backstage at Glastonbury in the book. No spoiler alerts. And we were trying to come up at the time with a kind of a fun comical name for portaloos and Porta potties yes. I've actually been researching. This is how I spend my days, which kind of ties in quite nicely to... What we're gonna be talking on after the uh, post chat. Because we couldn't use Portaloo, could we? We couldn't use it's, Portaloo. It's a it's a trademark name. And- I actually emailed them. I actually emailed Portaloo and asked them and I got an email back saying, Yeah, no, you can't you can't see so, that. Because crucially, crucially, just
1: to just to be clear for anyone listening about trademarks or using proper names, yeah. If someone just went in and used the Lou as a Lou, it would be fine. But ours becomes it becomes a disaster for anyone who steps inside one of these things, so we couldn't really use a trade name. We might have gotten trouble for that, so
0: that, yeah so we 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 sat down um and I was telling telling the fact I said we need to come up with a really fun name, like a nickname for these porta and the other thing is they're called portaloos in the u k and they're called Porta potties in the u s yes. which is yeah, incredibly yeah. confusing, so we needed something and I, I said um, I said my I said Mark really likes fantasy he's really into fantasy and my kids were watching the new Doctor Who series at the time and my son piped up and he said Oh what about what about a TURDIS dad Turdist <laughs> And I was like genius genius So that's how and it came from a family discussion now I not quite the kind of highbrow conversations that I'm sure went around the the Francis family <laughs> dinner table but it's amazing what comes up. Tell so, your
1: son, tell your son, I still, I used it just this week. Uh, you know, I saw one in a, um, I forget, I was out with the kids or whatever. I just had a whole lot of turdis. So <laughs> I, I still use it. I still use it. Fact. So Sorry, I
0: dropped my thumb. I want to see one day, <laughs> I want to see a Wikipedia entry with the word turdis and have it attributed to Back to Reality, <laughs> oh, right. the novel, yeah. first featured. And, and then it becomes, what, what if that's our legacy, Mark? What if this whole five years of podcasts is that the one... One other thing that comes out of it is that we get an entry in the Wikipedia with the word turdis. I can think of worse legacies you? Really. <laughs> oh <my goodness>. yeah. <laughs> it would be on our epi- epitaph, right? Wikipedia entry for us. But anyway, um so going back, back to, to our guest. discussions. Yes, back to our guests. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Felix. Um but it's so it's it's so fascinating that The fact that Felix grew up in a in a family with these kind of conversations happened, I think, has absolutely it's no coincidence that he ended up writing novels.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 um. I mean, he obviously wanted to do something different. He was teaching, yeah, very successful as a teacher, and ran these other companies and what have you. But it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's clearly, and he. you know, this is the thing. This is the thing. If he'd done one novel, and it might have been a fluke or whatever, but you know, he's written fifteen of these, mm. I think, on his own yeah. or, or at least you know with his dad. So he has proven beyond any doubt that he can, you know, bang out an absolutely cracking page-turning thriller. So uh, yeah, no doubt whatsoever.
0: And one other thing I found really fascinating is the fact that Felix was very open about, you know, looking at the formula of his dad's books. Yeah. and and i think about you know you mentioned you know Mrs. marple i was actually thinking agatha christie as, as he was mm. talking about that within thrillers and i think it's brilliant that he's embraced that because i think a lot of people um kind of shy away from that it's something that i think a lot of authors should do more of generally it's just looking at the kind of the, you know the, the the structure of what makes a certain novel that they love great and the fact that he was doing it with his dad's novels and but proved that he it still works you know he, he obviously i mean had a lot more in depth knowledge about it being you know his son of his dad but just shows the value of actually really studying uh, if you like the architectural plans of one of your favorite authors i i think as well what he
1: understood perhaps more than most authors is what the readers want from these novels you know so dick francis is a brand. Like you say, we saw it everywhere. We saw it at the library, bookshelves, grandparents, parents, you know, have these books lying around and you know what to expect from the, these. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a quality level, you know, you know what you're going to get. And it's not that it's, um, formulaic to the point of being repetitive or whatever, but it's just a, sati- you get a certain kind of satisfaction, which is why these big brands do so well. The James Patterson's, you know, the things like that. And, I know people in certain literary circles will, you know, fan their foreheads and whatever and, and get all oh how you know but this this these are the brands that prop up publishers, frankly, you know. And he understands that he needs to deliver a certain kind of character, a certain kind of story for readers uh, who will come back. They are loyal customers. They they will keep coming back for more. And as he said, he ran the business side of his um, father's, you know, writing enterprises for for some time. So he he came at that with a with a unique perspective. And and what's wonderful is that he's not just some faceless corporate person hiring other authors to churn it out. You know, the same old thing. He clearly loves what he's doing. You know, that's what I love about this. He isn't. This is no cynicism here. He really, really loves uh, yeah. writing these books, and yeah. um, he's
0: totally owned it. His quote, a quote that he said about, uh, I love, I love finishing them. Yes. <laughs> I <I'm> think <laughs> like really every author's finish. like, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. We understand yeah. that very well. Yeah. I think one of the other things that I found fascinating is um, this idea of easy reading. Now, this is something that we, yeah. we, you know, it, it, again, within literary circles, so oh, it's like a throwaway novel or it's a, you know, it's a beach book, but simple is hard. Easy yeah. reading is difficult to write. It actually requires a certain amount of um, expertise and skill because I always go back to this Mark Twain quote, you know, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have Did time, time to write, to write, you a, write a, short a short one. one yeah. So it's like, you know, it. it I I do I know. And any author, any author who's ever attempted to write a easy reading novel will get this. I think there needs to be a lot more respect for people who can um, create a book which is easy to read because it's,
1: it's something I, I try for and it's one of the greatest compliments I, I, you know, I get is, is when someone says it was an easy read, I read it in a day, I read it and then I just, yeah. funny enough, I'm getting quotes for Babes in the Wood now. And I think, I think it was Rhoda Baxter who said she read it in one sitting and I'm like, oh, oh God, thank you.
0: Fantastic. You know, so it's
1: just, it just brings me such joy that someone was able
0: to dip in and then not want to get out again, you know? So it's, um, yeah. yeah. The last thing you want is it's someone spending a year reading your book. Right? Yeah. What does that tell us? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so I think that's really fascinating, and I think that again, it's something that maybe it comes from. I don't know when you look at like these grade grading softwares where you can put you can put your you can put your novel into a, and if you haven't done this, do it because it's fascinating. You put your novel into kind of an analysis tool online, and it tells you what equivalent grade level. Uh, it reads as and the highest ones are like academic and there is this thing I mean I've been to uni and you know I've sat down and tried to write an essay and you do try to sound as intelligent as you can and use words that you would never say down the pub but the point is is that there's less and less people that are able to understand as you go, you know, as you get more and more complex with your words and your writing, you're reducing your audience because there's less and less people. And now there is a part Fewer. of it, which is, few, as thank you very much. <laughs> editing as we go, you see, editing on the fly folks. It's really important. It's really important to kind of, I mean, I think it's great. When I when I see a new word in a book, it, I, I'm the kind of person that looks it up because I'm curious and I want to expand my English. But at the same time, I think, you know, there is this tendency to act, have academic writing equals kind of intelligent I, writing. I
1: mean, I remember we had this conversation when we were writing Back to Reality. There were certain words where you go, well, I don't know what that means, you know, or yeah. I've never," or that's a weird word. And um, I remember talking to RJ Barker when we had him on the show and his editor was on the show. And she made the point of saying that, I forget what word that he used on page, but it was on page one. And she said, don't put that word on page one. And he was like, why? He said, because someone will read that and think, that book's not for me you can get away with that word halfway in the book when you've got them when they're reading and turning the page and everything and then you can throw in the weird words and get all highfalutin but yeah you know so there there is that that conversation to be, particularly with bestsellers you know do you want to i mean obviously with literary fiction i think people are pushing the force they they want to do something extraordinary but if if you're as you know, as I wish to do, I, I want people to have a nice, easy read, come away having been told a great story and, you know, on to the next one. And I think that there's there's a, you know, there's a knack to making it readable in that particular way. And one of those things is don't put the difficult word on the first page, save it for later on, if, yeah. if at all. Um, and it's interesting because it's something that, Pro writing aid does as well as the whole sticky sentences sort of mention, thing as yeah, well, yeah, yeah, which annoys me a bit. But, um, but it's uh, it does make you think, and I think that and the podcasts and the experience of writing back to reality as well has made me think about the language that I use, and it's all about finding your voice as well. I mean, I grew up reading. Stephen Fry and Douglas Adams, who both, you know, brain the size of a planet, and every now and then Stephen Fry will throw a word in and you go, well, I'm going to have to look that up. Hang on. <laughs> uh, and if, if you're using words that aren't in your regular vocab, then the odds are that your writing voice isn't a reflection of you and it might be construed as a bit pretentious, which is a word that will definitely describe my writing output in my late teens and early 20s. Ah. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) pretentious, moi. Um, So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you you think by using big
0: words you'll be clever, but uh, you'll be clever if you use little ones. Yeah, I, don't know I, I think you'll sell more books if you so if you use the little ones. But the, <laughs> the save save the save the really big words for the BBC quiz shows when you're a famous author. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I loved as well that that Felix talked about Writer's momentum as well. He didn't say those words. It's something that we kind of nabbed and defined. But he he mentioned about how as he goes through the book, you know, it might start off a bit slow, but you know, like a like a good horse race, it kind of speeds up and gets Very more good. exciting towards the end. So that you 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 know, I like this idea that again we go back to the two hundred word challenge that that we've set up. The fact that you know Felix was saying, you know, I might only get two hundred fifty words. And we're like, yes, that's brilliant. That's all you need to do today. Because the point is, is that we know from from experience, and I know as well from looking at all the statistics of everyone who's posting their word count every day on the 200wordchallenge.com site, is that it increases as it goes. In fact, we saw it with Claire's book, didn't we, where we got this, I drew a graph and you could see the writer's momentum, like Claire hit that midpoint in her book. And her word count just went through the roof. So, you know, start with 200 a day. By the end of your book, you are probably be like, rushing to finish it because you want to get to the end because he's so excited. And you might be doing 1,000, 2,000, who knows, even 5,000 a day if you're really going for it.
1: Yeah. And I loved his routine as well. His routine fascinated mm. me. So he starts by reading what he wrote yesterday and then working on that. And th- But he hopes to have 1,000 new words per day and then finishes, you know, generally by five and then just writes one draft, which he'll, you know, then this is, this is the kicker, goes away with his wife for a weekend where she reads it out loud to him and he makes notes. Now, that's devotion. Love that, it. That's brilliant,
0: isn't it? But what <laughs> a brilliant, I mean, I've got, okay, when I heard, I, I pressed pause on the interview when I heard that because I thought, <laughs> what, what a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. Number one. What a great way to celebrate reaching the end of your draft yep. with your partner who's had to not see you for the last however many months because you've been tucked away writing. What a great way to go and celebrate with yep. them and get time with them. But I love, love, love the idea of not just reading your own novel out loud yourself, which is what we talked about a number of times, didn't Yeah but having somebody else read it back to you mm. and for you to be able to hear all the things that you know because there's going to be loads of times where I'm sure um Felix's wife would be like uh, and she'll stumble and be like uh, and didn't, and and he'll know oh I've got to rewrite that sentence it yeah. doesn't flow you know yeah. so it's a brilliant brilliant way of I mean, it's a win-win all over, isn't it? They get to go away together. They get to write. And it all happened really quickly as well. It's like a couple of days of reading. And then Mm. he said, you know, I finished a couple of days at the end, polishing it off and then send it (laughs) off. I'm like, oh, I like the sound of that. Because usually that stage can really drag on, can't it? You know,
1: five years, we're still finding new ways to write a novel. I love it. You know, there's no one way of doing this. And I I love the annual routine. And this is something his father did as well. His father talked about this famously, which is, you know, he starts in August and he's finished by May. Uh, so, you know, that guarantees the one book a year. And like you said, he says, I really enjoy finishing. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um yeah, there's... There's, there's lots to learn from this folks. This, I'm, um, I'm hoping this will click with a lot of people. in terms yeah. of, Well, know.
0: another one, another one that, that stood out for me was the, the three day rule, which is interesting because I talked to think about only just two weeks ago on the podcast about two day two days. Never. If you miss one day of writing, that's okay. You're human, but try not to miss two days in a row. Three days in a row, the three day rule that Felix was talking about was the point where you start to lose the thread or mm. lose the plot. Um, and I think it's really important as a writer that that you try to not let that gap go because I think Ben Aronovich says, you know, he comes back to his novel, you know, later and all the characters have got bored and wandered off. And I think that's so crucial is that it's not about, you know, writing every day and beating yourself up if you miss a day but try not to miss two and definitely don't miss three because then then literally it's like the kettle starts to get cold. So it's really important to keep that going. And I think that's a really good kind of rule of thumb to kind of live by as a writer. Mm, absolutely. It's fascinating stuff. And obviously glass of red wine at the end of the day, I think that's a great incentive. I think, you know, having <laughs> having that to look forward to as opposed to drinking it whilst you're writing i think having that to look forward to is is a is a great way you know do something and it doesn't have to be wine it could be hobnobs but if you prefer something more healthier you could you know your favorite netflix show or something reward yourself when you get to the end of that writing session so that you reinforce you reinforce that what you've done is been a really good positive thing and uh yeah brilliant stuff and we could go on there's so much more but we have lots of social media as well don't we mark so yeah it been an incredible um, week incredible but before but, yeah. we dive in shall we um we're going to remind people that we're going to announce the joe yes. winner at the end of the show so end of the uh, show yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. it's gonna happen um, but Tell us, there's been there was quite a reaction I hear to our toilet <laughs> humor last week. Which, well, look, let's um, let's put this into some sort of context because
1: we were talking about because our guest uh, Elisa uh, I I said, you know, I'm going to put her book in the loo. Some people misconstrued that and thought I was going to flush it down the toilet. No, no. I the idea was that I would put it, give it pride of place on a shelf. In my toilet where I keep my toilet books. And I've had people come to me out of the blue go uh, on social media go. You put books in your toilet, you absolutely disgusting foul beast, <laughs> And then I've got other people going, yeah, look at my shelves. I've got all these books. So we, we started a hashtag, hashtag Lou books. And um, yes, the reaction has been mixed. Uh one of the first we we got a reaction from Kim Breton, who did the audiobook, narrated the audiobook of Back to Reality. And I, I gotta I gotta say the audiobook. You want to talk about reading aloud, having someone wonderful read a book to you? Listen to Kim narrating the audiobook of uh Back to Reality on Audible. Uh, she does it absolutely fantastically. But she said, no books in the bathroom, just what we like to call the pooka And she's got <laughs> hanging on the wall a, a little ukulele, but in the shape of a dobro, a steel guitar. And it was absolutely brilliant. So yeah, you <laughs> sit there and, you know. Um, uh, on the other hand, we had Kerry Oman, who's a, an academy, uh, say she will never sniff a book again. <laughs> <laughs> um, Love it. You'll like now. You'll like this one. Uh, Brooke Robinson, who is at Brooke, wrote on Twitter. She says, "Wasn't it a book in the Lou, which led Hank in Breaking Bad to realize Walt was Heisenberg, the ultimate Lou book plot point? If I'm remembering correctly, I remember it was, it was it, uh, sorry, Walter, boy, Walter, uh, Walt Whitman." Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, I remember the scene. I remember yeah, yeah. the scene. Spoiler if you've not seen Breaking um, <laughs> Bad. But, um, yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely true. So, well, remember Brooke. And, of course, Seinfeld did a whole episode of uh, George Costanza. He he got a book. I think he was in a Barnes & Noble, got a book, went to the store toilet and then tried to put it back on the shelves. And they're like, no, 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 no. You take that into the toilet, you've bought it. You know, we're not putting that back <laughs> <up."> <laughs> So, yeah, that That's was good fantastic. fun. Um, That's Ivan fantastic, Ivan Wright, who is at Ivan Wright on Twitter. Uh, he's got a lovely bookshelf, which is shaped like a little boat. Uh, and it's got lots of books about cats and dogs and chickens. So thank you for sharing that, Ivan. Jan Carr and... More about uh, Jen in a minute. Um, she's got a fantastic, this collection is absolutely perfect. She's got The Vicar of Dibley Scripts, 101 Things to Do Before You Die. I mean, you want to read that when you're on the car see, don't you? Absolutely. Um, she's yeah. got, you know, the Cockney rhyming slang book, Dave Gorman's Google Whack. I mean, these are all classic, classic Lou books. Uh, Nicey and Wifey's Nice Cup of Tea and a Sit Down, <laughs> all perfect all perfect Lou books. So thank you for sharing that, Jan. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, And Tom Foote, I love this one as well. Tom Foote, he, he's he got those, I don't know if you remember these, they did tiny little hardbacks of the first four Terry Pratchett books. So there's a oh, picture yeah, of him, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a picture of him with his one saying, anyone else go to the restroom and find themselves a little bit disappointed by the size? Of course, he's referring to his Terry Pratchett's. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah. So thank you, for everyone. Let's keep this going because we Let's have keep had, going. Uh, like I say, a mixed reaction. Some people think we're appalling. Um, some people, you know, uh, are totally into this. I, I love it. So well, you-
0: well, here's a little bit to add as well, just in case people do think we're weird. Something I didn't know about, actually, until I moved to Canada was something called Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. Never <laughs> never even heard of those in England. But they're everywhere in North America. Uh, first right. released in 1988. There's been a new edition every year until he's even been one out in 2021. And I think I'm trying to, I was trying to find the figures, but I, I know, I, I mean, I'm guessing here, but this, this will have, this series will have sold millions. Ah, 15 million, just found it in, wow. in 15 million books. So if you think there's not money in toilet reading, uh, think again, 50, <laughs> 15 million books sold. And that was, that was from like a couple of years ago. So um, ah, the percentage of people, oh, here we go. 63% of people, Uh, It's a number of people that read books, magazines, and and, uh, newspapers in the bathroom. According to a survey by plumbing fixture company, American Standard... (laughs) It's (laughs) It's <laughs> unlikely to be an exclusive habit, as the uh, similar survey found that seventy-five percent uh, of people also use their phones whilst on the toilet. Mm. Um, one Oregon resident realised the amount of time spent reading in the bathroom could be an interesting business opportunity. Mm. So you know, we, we're not making this up. Folks. Capitalism this is real. has to ruin everything. And, I, and, I've, and I've got to say, I've got to say, you know, um, really, you know, the the, the the most the most interesting thing about the, the toilet book is that um you know people think it's it's people who think it's not clean and stuff you you like you yeah I'm not even gonna go there you you wash your hands after and you don't yeah. and you wash your hands before you go as well if you really want and then the books are in pristine condition. It's like yeah. if we if we learned anything from the last 18 months, wash your hands. Okay? Exactly right <laughs> so it's not gross and it's not grim. And but if you ever do get stuck, then if the book's are a lot of rubbish, then hey, you know what to do, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've got I've got that that two bits. That would be a, of- that would be a good one, but I'm not because we don't want to. We don't want to talk about authors' books that have been used for survive. Uh, Ju- Ju- Julian Barr <laughs> did get in touch and he said the, the toilet
1: jokes at the end of last week's was a bit of a race to the bottom when I said <laughs> bottom. Um, right. <laughs> I've got two bits of really, really good news. Uh, first of all, our spotlight author for last week, uh, Jankar. Carr, uh, you know, she, we uh, booked the Wonder Girls Resist. It's a Kickstarter. She was up against the deadline. She had to raise £3,200. That was her goal. Well, she only went and did it. She only went fantastic. and did it with time to spare as well. So the Wonder Girls is fully funded. I've had my email from Kickstarter saying, "Yes, yeah, it's funded. Uh, oh, you know, so fantastic. So, Jan, best of luck with that. It'd be lovely to, uh, you know, we're just going to follow this all the way through to publication and just see how that all goes. So that's one bit of Congratulations, Jan. Amazing fantastic. News. The oh, other yeah. one, and this broke today, actually. This broke on the bookseller just this morning uh, and a friend of the podcast and member of the bestseller experiment team on Facebook, Lorna Cook. Okay. You know, Lorna, she's been on the podcast. She's an award winner, RNA award winner. Okay. So the headline says Century preempts Cook's page turning novel in two book deal. Uh, and she's writing a new two-book series under the pseudonym L. Cook and uh, fiction director Emily Griffin acquired world well rights to a book called The Man I Never Met and, uh, the f- and another unnamed novel. The first novel will be published in spring 2023 and the synopsis is The Man I Never Met tells a story of Hannah and Davey who connect by chance when Davey misdials Hannah's number when calling for a job interview. They form a long-distance friendship that soon turns into something more as Davey prepares to relocate from the US to London. But when Davey... Maybe David fails to show up in England. Hannah finds out that 5,000 miles isn't the only thing that's been dividing them. Are they fated to remain on different sides of the world or does the universe have a different plan? That sounds absolutely brilliant. But here's the little kicker. In the next paragraph, and I didn't know this. Right, so Lorna, she's written three historical time slip novels, The Forgotten Village, Forbidden Promise, Girl from the Island, published by Avon in the UK. They've sold more than 230,000 copies combined and translated into 10 languages that is astonishing Fantastic <laughs> i mean wow
0: and we remember lorna emailing us don't we yeah right yeah. the beginning and got into the podcast and said some incredibly beautiful things about how how this has helped us so lorna we salute you now it's your turn to inspire everyone absolutely brilliant and what a brilliant title you see you know you know You have to spend time in your titles, folks. Um, Absolutely brilliant. That kind of book makes me instantly think, I want to read that. I want to know Mm. what that's about. Um, So this is real, folks. This happens. We get to celebrate your growth as an author. We get to celebrate your breakthroughs. We get to listen and hear about authors that have lived their dreams in writing. And that is why we are here Every week, showing up to keep you writing. So Betcha. please, please, please keep your dream alive. You know, it's 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 a lifetime journey. We know that, and uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Now, speaking of dreams, before we finish, shall we do this? We have had a lot of people entering our competition for joe abercrombie's this is a proof copy mark isn't it this is not something you can get in the shops
1: no it's an advanced reading copy and uh, it was ahead of our interview with joe because sometimes the publishers send books and they sent it ahead uh I already had the heart back in order, actually, and I made the decision to reread the whole trilogy. So actually, by the time I got round to the third book, it had been published. So I just read the hardback. So this hasn't, brilliant. I hasn't said, even, you know, either. when we first launched it, I said this might have been a bit dog-eared, but it's not. But there's, let's have a Joe's look at the signature. Signature there. He signed <sighs> oh, it at the event that. at Waterstones Piccadilly, uh, when I met him there. So real exactly. deal. So brilliant. Right. Um, I, I got, okay, I'm going
0: to get, we're going to get a number generator up, right? So you're going to, I'm going to press roll. a button and you're going to, get the drum roll going, and then we're going to Of course, this is winner. off
1: YouTube, so we're probably going to have an advert
0: for uh, something weird. <laughs> I dread to think. For percussion up. instruments. Yeah. Do you want to learn yeah. the drums? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you know okay. what I was amazed at, though, is, is just the, uh, the amount of Joe Abercrombie fans. I mean, we know he's a big author. he sold millions of books. But um, we've had such a great response, actually, from from that interview. And it's so lovely to get people to come back later on so that's one of the things that we want to do you know um we want to follow the story through with people so um all right mr keep, stay are we all ready keep, keep no
1: keep talking, oh, keep talking. One okay. two. and
0: one of the other thing that's really interesting about um <laughs> authors who we've had on the show do you know what i knew we should have done this with roll because do you remember the the fun that we had with drum rolls in the past absolute this is our nemesis this is the elephant that comes on to blue peter and poos every time do you remember that uh, this is this is ours are we ready are we ready let's do this ready I think we shouldn't edit any of this at all because it's all good fun. Okay. The winner of the Joe Abercrombie put signed book. I've clicked on a video book. that says 10 hours of endless drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> how long should we... Should we see how long people are willing to wait? Yeah, yeah, Folks, yeah, how much patience do you have? <laughs> here we go. Here's... Craig Maher. Congratulations, Craig. Well then, Craig, congratulations. You are the winner of our Joe Abercrombie signed book. And Mr. Stay will be emailing you to get your, your address so he can, he can wing it your way. And if you missed out, folks, we're, we're terribly sorry, but we will hopefully have some more excellent, exciting giveaways. So if you'd like to hear about those first, get onto the mailing list. And if you would like to be a part of our live fifth, fifth year episode with absolutely no drum rolls guaranteed get along to the podcast website that's bestsellerexperiment.com click on newsletter and put your name in and we will send you details of how you can join us live on video me and mark doing what we do winging it as we do every week Um, week. and you can be a part of the fun we'll be able to chat with you um, you know send us your questions live on the show and see some of the chaos that does ensue even after five years of doing this you know, we still have a lot of fun, so do join us. And if you want to do the 200 word challenge, uh, if you're inspired by Felix and and what he's been doing with his writing, it's 200 word challenge. Dot com And Mr. Stay, where can people find us on social media?
1: Yes, we're on social media. Uh, Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Drop us a line. We're on BestsellerExperiment.com. Uh, there's a contact tab there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've been inspired, tell your writer friends and maybe leave us a rating or review on your podcast uh, uh, supplier of choice, uh, because all of those ratings make us more visible and they might help us go for another five years, as if Absolutely. you haven't suffered
0: enough. <laughs> well exactly, right? And um just a little teaser as well. We may or may not be making an announcement, a special announcement on the live show. You'll have to show up to find out if we actually do. But if we do, it will be worth coming to because it will be setting us up for season 6. So please, please come along and join us. And I this has been the highlight of my week, Mark. I hope it's been the highlight of everyone out there's week and i hope if mm. you've been feeling a bit low today and you think oh my writing sucks or I haven't done my words or you're feeling great about your writing i hope that you have a rocket launch just now to get out there and make this next week absolutely fantastic so Mr. Day, thank you so much for all your inspiration and fun and laughter and uh, look forward to <laughs> joining <laughs> you again for next week and it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two
1: goodbye goodbye Bye.
0: Bye.